Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Naples Weekly Sermon Podcast. We hope you'll be blessed by this week's message from Pastor Aaron Lapp. For more information about this podcast and other Calvary Chapel Naples resources, please visit us at ccnaples.org. Lord, God, thank you so much again for this beautiful morning and this opportunity to come together to open up your word. Lord, your word is nothing to be afraid of. Lord, it is a comfort to us. And Lord, let that be the case every time we open up this word, that it would be a comfort to us, Lord, that it would direct us and even challenge us, Lord, that it would convict us in the places in our lives that need to be changed, handed over to you, repented of, or confessed, Lord. I pray that this morning would be just a blessing as we walk through your word this morning. Lord, I know that your word says that if we're gathered together in your name, that you're here in our presence. And so I am counting on that promise, Lord. Lord, that your uh, Holy Spirit is present with us today in this room, Lord, that you would open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, you would protect us in this space and in these times that we live, Lord, as we come gathered together to worship you. Thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray, amen. Okay, well, last week in chapter 23, you know, we're looking at the very end of Jesus's last public message. Just a couple of days from this point, he's actually going to be arrested in the middle of the night, tried, um, falsely uh, found guilty, and then crucified. It's coming. Um, There's just a few chapters left in Matthew's gospel. So he's at the end of his ministry. This is the last time he's going to be speaking in the the temple there um, to to the public. And he says to them, um, last week he warned them about the, the the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. He gives one example after another of how they are holy and righteous on the outside, even uh, doing things like strapping large phylacteries to their foreheads and their forearms to appear holy or walking around with extended or extra long tassels so that people would look at them and think that they were very holy. But he says, on the inside, they're dead, they're corrupt, they're empty. He points out that they love being recognized in public. They love the titles, rabbi, teacher, father. And Jesus tells his followers, don't you fall in love with titles and public recognition. Have you ever met someone who said, oh, hello, Mr. Smith? And they said, duh, it's Dr. Smith. (laughs) Oh, congratulations. Then come the woes in chapter 23, an expression of Jesus' grief over their hypocrisy, not just because they are faking faith, but because it's causing them not to genuinely enter into relationship with him, and it's causing others to not enter into relationship with him or with God genuinely. They would look at these guys, these Pharisees, these leaders of their faith, and they would say, Oh man, look how holy that guy is. I could never be as holy as that guy. So what's the point? What hope is there for me? Or they would say, I could never keep all of the laws that they keep, all the laws that they say that we have to keep in order to live a holy and righteous life. What's the point? And Jesus would say, you're causing those who genuinely want to enter into a relationship with God, you're keeping them out by your hypocrisy. It just reminds me of, and if you, if you saw the movie Jesus Revolution and the story of Chuck Smith and his church, and he discovered that there was this group of people, they were called hippies. There's probably a couple of you here. 
They were desperately searching for something, although they didn't actually know what it was, but it was Jesus. And Chuck's wife goes to him and he says, Chuck, somebody's got to reach the hippies. Somebody's got to go to the hippies. Now, in the movie, Chuck was like, well, okay, let's go do it. But in real life, he was like, uh, no, they need to take a bath. So Chuck was even kind of flirting with that line of hypocrisy right there. He was saying like, no, they should go and take a bath, and then they are welcome in the church. But God got a hold of him and kind of gave him what my pastor used to call a holy papow. And he was like, you know what? You're right. We got to get them in regardless of what they look like, regardless of what they're wearing. And he invited all these hippies into church and they came in and, you know, dirty and shoeless. Um, and they, but they had a desire that was being now filled by the teaching of the word of God. Well, there were people in his church who were just like, Chuck, what are you doing? You're inviting all these hippies in and their, their bare feet are making the carpet dirty. They were what Jesus is talking about. They were keeping people out because of some kind of rule that they dirty, you know, you can't come in with bare feet. You can't come into church with bare feet because your bare feet will make the carpet dirty. You know what Chuck did? He ripped out the carpet. Said, problem solved. No more dirty carpet. They were causing people to not be able to enter into a relationship with God by their rules and the, the hypocrisy that Jesus will say they weren't even following themselves. At the end of that chapter, we see Jesus' heart. Listen, in verse 37 of chapter 23, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But listen, you were not willing. In Greek, that means you did not desire it. He says to them, how desperately I want to gather. When he says, a hen gathers her chicks, he's saying, I would die for you. In fact, I will die for you. But you don't desire it. And it's not, he's not angry. He's sorrowed, grieved over this. Well, he says to them at the end, see, your house is left desolate. You know, he means your house. It's very interesting that he's in the temple still, and he says, your house has been left desolate. Now, the, fair, the disciples are going to think that he's talking about the temple, right? But when he's talking about the temple, he says, my house. Remember when he came in to cleanse it, and he says, you have made my house a house of uh, thievery and corruption. It should be a house of prayer. But he says, your house, your place that you dwell. In fact, what he's saying is the place where you live, remember he's talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and he's saying the place where you live is going to be left desolate, full of hypocrisy and corruption. This your house thing is really going to be confusing to the disciples. We're going to see that right at the beginning of chapter 24 here. But he ends this chapter, he says, For you, I, I say to you, shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, and, and this is the thing. Jesus now is going to start dropping in some major prophecy from this point forward. Some things that they're going to see and some things that have yet to come to pass. But he's talking when he says, For you shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I believe is a reference to Revelation 1, chapter 7. Uh, when Ace, this, I'll read it to you. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, he says, Behold, 
He is coming with clouds and every eye will see him and every, even they who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him even so, amen. And Jesus says, I'm going away and you will not see me until my second coming. And it's described in Revelation as I'm gonna come and every knee will bow and every tongue will, sh- will confess. That doesn't mean that everyone will sa- be saved because we know that some are gonna go into judgment. But it does mean that no one will, that there won't be anyone sitting there saying, who is that coming out of the clouds? They will all know, and they will mourn over their rejection. Now, in in chapter 24, verse 1, he says, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to show him the buildings of the temple. So you see that Jesus has just said to them, your house is going to be left desolate. And they're looking at the temple going, what? What could he possibly be talking about? So it says they came and they show him the buildings of the temple. They're like, Jesus, look at this temple. Look at how amazing this temple is. Now let me tell you, the temple was amazing. This was the second temple that was made. Solomon built the first temple, and it was pretty amazing, right? But it was destroyed um, eventually by Nebuchadnezzar, who came in and basically wiped out the temple and all Jerusalem. And and, and then he kind of came in and out. You can read about this. But in his final kind of takeover, he took many of the Jews captive. He destroyed the temple. He destroyed the city. Now, after his reign, Ezra rises up and is allowed to go back and rebuild the temple, which he does uh, not on the scale that we see here, but much later in 20 BC, Herod the Great, remember I said Herod the Great, you know, little Herod the Great, four foot 11, but a great mind, crazy, but a great mind and an amazing architect. And one of his projects was to refurbish and renovate or remodel the temple. And so he started rebuilding and remodeling this temple in 20 BC about Um, And he made this thing so massive. And so it was now 13 acres. Imagine 13 acres, the temple. And it was made uh, out of white sandstone blocks. Some of them were over 650 tons. Some of these blocks of stone, they still to this day do not know how they cut them or got them into place. There there is no mortar in the temple. The stones are cut so exactly that they fit together by like millimeters. Some of the bedrock stones of the temple are actually, of the foundational stones, are cut to fit the contour of the bedrock on which they sit. We don't know how they did that. Still, we don't know how they did that. But they did it. This thing was white sandstone, covered with white marble, with a gold crown all the way around the top. In fact, it was so large and so bright white that it said that when the sun shone on the temple, you couldn't even look at it. It was so bright. The temple was revered. It was the center of Jewish life. And it was said to to speak against the temple was considered blasphemy. Jesus has just said, your house is going to be left desolate. Now, he wasn't talking about the temple, only they're confused and they think he is. And they're looking like, Jesus, have you actually considered this building? Look at how magnificent it is. And really what they're saying is, look at what we've done with our hands under our own power. Worship it with us. And I was thinking about that. And thinking about, you know, what men, what humanity has been able to accomplish with their hands. 
And there are some amazing things. But it all pales in comparison to what God has done like that by speaking it. I was just thinking about just buildings in general. The temple was an amazing building, right? Have you ever been to Utah? <laughs> you ever go to like Monument Park? Um, uh, or uh, I forget the other one that's right next to it. Um, arches, arches, thank you. There are amazing structures that are in that, like that you would look at and be like, how could that possibly balance rock? Have you ever heard it? It's 55 feet high and it weighs like, 3,500 tons, and it's just balanced up there on this column. Still there. It's still there. And I look at these things, and i like, okay, yeah, our buildings are cool, but have you seen this? Have you seen that? Have you, if you take something, even the most beautiful thing that we've ever made, and you look at it under a microscope, the closer you get to it, the uglier it gets. But if you take something from nature and you put it under a microscope, the closer you get, the more beautiful and finite it gets. It's amazing. The work of God's hand so outdoes anything. And yet, here's the temple. And they're like, Jesus, look at the temple. It's amazing. Look how big it is and look how bright and look at all the gold and it's amazing and we love it and please don't speak bad about the temple because it'll be considered blasphemy. And you're like, that's old hat for me. I've already been accused of blasphemy like a thousand times. So Jesus says to them, do you not see all these things? He points them back to the temple. He says, you see this thing, this thing that you love, this, this thing that you've made with your own hands and that you revere? Not one stone will be left upon another, nor sh it shall be torn down. He says, this temple that you just, uh, you revere, not one stone. Not only is it going to be deserted, not only is it going to be desolate, but he says not one stone will be left upon itself. And so what he does is he says to them, um, this is his first kind of like prophetic thing that we're going to look at today, is he says there is going to come a time, and he knows when it is, they don't know. He, there's going to come a time where not even one stone of this temple is going to be standing. They can't imagine it. Imagine they're, you're looking at, I mean, honestly... Honestly, I'm sorry if this is painful, but how many of you uh, ever saw the Twin Towers in person? And you looked up at those things and you were like, these are amazing. How many of you looking at them could ever imagine they'd be completely gone? And he says, this temple that you revere, not only is it going to be knocked down, desolate, and burned, not one stone will be left upon another. And he makes kind of a prophetic message to them that this is going to happen. And in fact, what we know is that um, it does happen. In around 66 AD, the Jews start to revolt against the oppressive Roman government. Um, and there's a series of revolts and battles. Now, really early on, the Jews have some success in battle against the Romans because they were really good at what was, what's called guerrilla warfare, meaning like they didn't fight in rows uh, but they would come at them from the streets and the rooftops and things like that. And the Romans at the time had, had um, enjoyed kind of like peace for so long that they weren't prepared. And so early on, around 66 AD, the Jews actually revolted and had some success. Well, this actually only made the Roman army really mad 
Uh, and so then eventually what happens is that um, Caesar will send in several legions, about four or five legions into Jerusalem to put down this revolt. And there's several battles along the way. But right around 70 AD, when the Romans are really kind of just taking over, the remaining Jews kind of flood into the temple and close up the gate because that's their most secure place. Now again, the temple was so beautiful that the commander of the Roman army, his name was Vespasian, Vespasian, I forgot it. That's his, I can't remember if that's his first name or his last name. Uh, Titus Vespasian. He begged the Jews, please come out and surrender so that we don't destroy this amazing building that's in front of us. He desperately was trying to save the temple, but the Roman army themselves were so mad because of the lives that they had lost in all of these battles that one of the soldiers took a torch and threw it into one of the windows of the temple and it caught the thing on fire. And the temple caught on fire and it eventually completely burned down. Now, like you're wondering, like, well, wait a minute. Like, how does stone burn down? Well, see, what happens with limestone is when it gets really hot, it cracks and starts to crumble. And so that's what happened under the weight of all the gold and the marble. All the wood that was inside and all the limestone dried out and cracked and crumbled and the whole thing fell. And essentially, everybody that was in the temple was incinerated. And the whole thing was destroyed. Jesus prophesied that. Now, here's the really interesting part. He's talking to his disciples, right? Half of them will actually live to see this happen. If you go through their lives and the dates that they were all killed, it's, it's um, in some cases known that, like John, for example, lived past 70 AD, but at least half of them, it's either unknown or thought that they lived to at least 70 and maybe beyond. So half of them saw with their own eyes this prophecy come through, something that they could never imagine in a million years happening happened right before their very eyes. Now, that really sets the tone for, for everything else that he's going to talk about because we're going to look at stuff in chapter 24 that you would like think, how could that ever happen but if Jesus says it's going to happen, guess what? It will happen. Nobody ever thought that the nation of Israel could ever, after World War II, ever come back as a nation. But in 1948, it happened. Every day since then, they've been try people have been trying to just wipe them off the map. And God won't allow it. But he says what he says is going to happen will happen. He says, not one stone will be left upon another. So just a little detail here. The gold that was wrapped around like the crown of the temple melted under the intense heat and dripped down through the stones of the temple. And so in the aftermath, when the Romans went in, they started pushing over the stones to try and scrape out the gold that had gone down in between the, the rocks, the stones of the temple. And so in doing so, they overturned every stone in order to get at the gold. It, just as Jesus had said, not one stone would be left upon another because they were after the gold. In verse three, it says, now he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him and tell us, they said, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Okay, so they're really upset, really. They're thinking like, wait a minute. You're saying that the temple that we love, this massive building, is going to be not just knocked down, but every stone overturned. Their first question is, tell us, when will these things be? Now, what's important to know when you're studying the Bible is that um, 
especially in the Gospels, they tell a lot of the same stories, right? And they're not all exactly the same, which is one of the things I think makes it seem so true, is like not every Gospel author tells the exact same story. It's the same story, but the details are different. So Matthew doesn't really record Jesus' answer to that question, but Luke does. Luke says um, in the same story, chapter 21, in verse 20, Jesus answers him, says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation is near. And then he says, you know, let those who are in Jerusalem flee to the mountains. So he says, when you see, he's in answer to the question of when will the temple be torn down? He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, which is exactly what the Roman army did is they laid siege and they surrounded Jerusalem. He says, when you see that then you know that the end of this, what I'm talking, the temple, then you know that that desolation is near. Run. That's what he tells them. Matthew doesn't spend time on that answer right there. Matthew goes right into what I believe is Jesus' commentary now on the um, tribulation. Let me, let me just state this right at the beginning so that everybody knows where I'm coming from. I am a pre-tribulation rapture guy. I believe that the church gets raptured before the tribulation happens. And I believe that the Bible supports it biblically. But here's the thing. You don't have to agree with me. Your salvation isn't based on whether we get raptured before or in the middle or at the end. I have a couple of reasons why, which may come up today if we get there. Um, but what Jesus does say is of the, of the rapture, we don't know when it's going to happen. It's going to be, he gives us examples later on. I'm not sure we'll get there today, but maybe next week he says it's going to come unknown to anybody. You'll be going about your daily. If it was mid or post, we actually could track the time because Daniel's prophecy tells us it's, you know, 1,260 days from this point will be the end. And so how then we would know the day or the hour, right? Well, it seems like. Anyway, there's other things, but that's where I'm coming from. So that's where I'm teaching from, all right? Again, you don't have to agree with me. Just, you know, sit quiet and listen. <laughs> so their next, so Jesus answered their first question in Luke 21, like I said. But he go, and then they say this, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And that, those are very important things that they're saying. When they say... Um, and what will be the sign? Um, what will be the sign is a, is a phrase that means what will authenticate? Like, like, how will we know it's true for sure? What's the proof of your coming? Which is such an interesting word. Um, I mean, in English, it's like, well, how, you know, what, what's going to be the sign of when you're going to return? But really what they're saying is it's a phrase that means the arrival of the owner who alone can deal with the situation. That's the, the phrase they use in, in Greek. We, we've translated in your coming, but really what they're saying is, what is the authentication of your arrival because you're the one who owns all of this and is the only one who can deal with what's going on here? And the end of the age, it means this. Um, all of the pieces coming together as a whole. That's that phrase, the end of the age in Greek means all the pieces coming together in a whole, which is really interesting to me because, um, you know, you could study each individual books of the Bible and all the stories individually and learn something from them. But what is the whole Bible pointing to? Jesus and his return. 
That's the entire message of the Bible. The whole Old Testament points ahead to Jesus. The whole New Testament points back to Jesus. Jesus is the culmination of all of it. And the end of it all is his second coming and his return and restoring everything back to order. That's all of the pieces coming into the whole. That's the phrase they use right there. The end of the age. This is a big question they're asking Jesus. And I think we're all like, yeah, Jesus, could you... uh, let us know what that's going to be, when that is going to be. And, you know, you know, he could have said, you know, April 22nd of 20, but he doesn't do that. And there's a reason. And Jesus answered and he said to him, take heed that no one deceives you. Okay, so this is what I want you to know. Jesus says, beware, take heed that no one deceives you. Why would he say that? Because people are going to try and deceive you. Deceive them, deceive us. People are going to come to deceive. That's why when he says, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, it's because they were afraid. If he says, don't be deceived, it's because he knows that people are going to try and come and deceive. And so he says, don't be deceived. Now, again, I'm just kind of putting this out there right now. I happen to believe, and this is how I'm going to teach this today, that this entire chapter from 5 down to 34 is talking about the tribulation time. All right, and I'm going to show you why as I go through that. Again, you don't have to agree with me, but this is what I believe this is pointing to. I believe that Jesus is talking about the tribulation time because what they're asking him is, when will be the time when all the parts will come to the whole or when will be the end? So he says, take heed that nobody deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. All right, let me just paint you a quick little picture of what I think will probably be the situation. Imagine the church has been raptured. What will that look like? What will the church being raptured out of the world look like? Well, the two things. One, it could be like what we've all seen in like movies and things where we're all sitting here and then all of a sudden all of our clothes are just sitting in our seats. Like every, everything, like our glasses, our earrings, our clothes, our wallets, everything just left right there. And like in a flash, all across the entire globe, that happens everywhere. Now, um, if that's the case, that would be like really weird to everybody. Like if, you know, like in the movies you see and they're sitting next to somebody and they're talking and all of a sudden they're just talking to a pile of clothes and they're like, what? What just happened? And because, you know, because they're not a church person, they probably swear. And (laughs) they're like, what the, you know. (laughs) You know, and sadly, you know, there's going to be some people who think they would have gone and they're like, wait a minute, wait a minute. And they'll be left behind. Now, imagine one or a dozen or a thousand of those are airline pilots. And they were flying a plane a minute ago, and all of a sudden they're gone. Or they're a bus driver or a cab driver or driving a car. How many of you drive cars? Yeah, a lot of us. So there's going to be a lot of cars probably going off the road, running into other cars, hitting people. It's going to be chaos, ridiculous chaos. Now, the other scenario could be that we don't just leave our clothes We also leave our earthly shells or our bodies. So what does that look like? All of a sudden, hundreds of thousands of people just fall down dead. That's what that would look like. Guess what that would seem like? A really big pandemic going across the globe. How easy will it be for someone to sweep in and take power? Oh, we just saw it. 
It's going to happen really easily. Chaos is my point. It will be chaotic. And many people are going to come in and claim to be, um, like he says, they're going to come in and say, I am the Christ. And they're going to deceive many. Many people in that time are going to take advantage of the chaos. And they're going to try to assume power by claiming to be the Messiah, the one who has been promised. In fact, there is going to be one, and he's going to talk about it, um, in Revelation chapter 6, you can read right at the beginning. Actually, you know what? At some point, very soon, I'm going to be doing a, a, a Revelation study. Not on Sunday morning. Sorry. Um, probably on a Sunday night. And it might be just a few sessions. I haven't figured it all out yet. But I have figured it all out. <laughs> um, but in chapter 6 of Revelation, it talks about what we, we know as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Right? And they all represent things that are going to happen right here at the beginning when, when the rapture happens and the tribulation starts. We all in our minds think, oh, well, it's going to be three and a half years of peace and then three and a half years of you know, really bad stuff. But it's going to be really, really, really bad at the beginning. It's going to be worldwide chaos and people are going to be power grabbing all over and there's going to be fear and panic and, and people taking advantage. And then it says in, in, um, in Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the first horse, the white horse. The white horse in Revelation represents a person called the Antichrist. And we say Antichrist, we think of like opposite Jesus. But anti just means instead of Christ. The instead of Christ. So this is going to be someone that the Bible talks about is going to be able to come in and ultimately he is going to um, be endued with, with the power of Satan. Satan's going to give him power to be able to come in and be super convincing I don't know if he's going to be from the, uh, re -res or the resurrected Roman uh, government. That's a possibility. Some people believe that because it's talk it talks about that he is from uh, of the people, but not really like of the people, that he would be a, a Jewish man who um, isn't a, um, not a religious Jew, but like a secular Jew who doesn't believe in God. He says he doesn't regard God at all. Whoever it's going to be is going to show up. He's going to be able to step in and he's going to be able to broker a deal that's going to look really great for the Jews. In fact, they're going to rebuild the temple and somehow he's going to be able to convince the Muslims and, and everybody else that they should be able to rebuild the temple and reestablish temple worship and sacrifice because that's what's going to be needed. And the whole world is going to get on board with this somehow, but it's probably because it says that he has a silver tongue, which means that he is really a, a very convincing Speaker, But Jesus says here, many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And when he talks about wars and rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled for all these things must come to pass. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Speaks of war in Revelation chapter 6. That's the red horse. So the white horse is the Antichrist coming. It's not just that he's going to come in and come, have complete peace. Obviously, we know that people are still people, right? So they're not going to be completely convinced. So they're going to be those who are going to want to fight against each other and against him. They're going to press back against what he's offering. And so there's going to be wars. And it says that there's going to be a red horse. So it represents war among all of the people. Wars are going to rise in kingdoms against kingdom. And it says, and then there will be famines. Jesus talks about famines that are going to come as a result. In Revelation chapter 6, it talks about the third horse, which is the black horse. It says that after these um, wars come in, following war is famine, always famine. 
especially in this time. And so it talks about after these wars, there's going to be massive famine in the land. In fact, it says that you're going to pay like a day's wage for a handful of grain. This is all what's going on right at the beginning of the tribulation. And then it says, and pestilence is, pestilence is disease. That's the pale horse, the fourth horse in Revelation. Talks about the pale horse, which is disease and pestilence, and then death comes as a result of it. So Jesus says that these are the things that will happen, and, and earthquakes in various places, and if you read on in, in Revelation, you hear about more than one time, massive earthquakes that are coming. In fact, later on um, in, in, in Revelation, it says that there's an earthquake that's so massive that it shifts all the plates of the earth. And so everything shifts out of position, and literally everything falls down, including, you know what falls down? Balance rock. The creation that God said, well, you made a big temple? Great, look what I did, but I'm going to knock it down for what I'm trying to accomplish because it doesn't mean anything to me. He says, all these are the beginnings of sorrows. That phrase, beginnings of sorrows, in Greek, it is birth pains or labor pains. It is the beginning of labor pains. So he's saying, when this starts at the beginning of that time of tribulation, seven years at the time, he says, that is the beginning of labor pains. You know, you know, labor, I mean, I don't personally know, but I've heard, and I've been present, um, is that, you know, labor starts off like this. Oh, I think I felt something. And then a few, a few hours later, or maybe 20 hours later, it's like, you did this to me. <laughs> like, okay, I'm sorry, I'll just get water. Where are the, where are the ice chips? <laughs> They get increasingly worse, increasingly worse, and closer and closer together. And you don't really know when exactly it's going to end. You just know it's getting bad and bad and bad. And, he's, and that's what he says. It will be like that, that time of tribulation. You know, it's going to be, you know, painful and hard at the beginning. Um, and he says, don't be fooled um, because it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> it does. When we go through Revelation, you'll see that it just gets ridiculously worse. And do you know that um, even through that, there will be people who will shake their fist at God and blame him and, and, and hate him rather than to, to fall down and say, forgive me, although there will be those who will get saved during the tribulation time. Do you know why? Because it is God's desire that no man perish, but all come to repentance. That is his desire for every person to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ so that he will go through. First of all, he says, you know what? In order to get you all saved, I'm going to send my son who will have to die for you. And that's pretty drastic. But for those of you who don't accept that, I'm going to get even more drastic in hopes that you will come to your knees and ask for forgiveness. And many will but most won't. Woo! All right, let's roll. It says in verse 9, and then they will deliver you up to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Now imagine what's going to happen. Like they're going to realize at some point, let's just go back to it like it's all just our clothes that got left behind, right? And someone's going to be like, wait a minute, I'm seeing something in common. It was like all those church people that are gone. This must be their fault. All those church people, well, I'm glad they're gone. Even though we're having war and famine, I'm glad all those you know, pesky Christians are out of the way. By the way, you know where we'll be? 
Marriage supper of the Lamb, baby. Woo! We'll get to that when we get to when we get to uh, Revelation. Oh yeah, fried chicken. Well, I mean, like, and I guess lamb, maybe. But <clears throat> anyway, so so, but anybody at that point or during that time who does come to a place and be like, I was wrong. Oh my goodness, I can't believe it. You know what I have in my my office. Um, we should all do this, okay? If you need a copy, I'll give it to you. I have a letter in my office uh, uh, sitting on a Bible that it says, in case of um, the mass disappearance of de- or death of millions, open up and read this letter. And then when you open it up, it lays out, this is what's happening to you right now. This is why. This is what you do. And it explains, you give yourself over, you you ask God to forgive you of your sins and accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you will be going to heaven when this is over. That's uh, instructions in my office, uh, really big block letters. Um, And uh, we should all put that in our house somewhere, everybody. So when, when you're gone and people are looking and they find your Bible, rather than to have to kind of figure it out, just tell it to them in a letter and stick it in your Bible or have a Bible so that when we're gone, they can be like, okay. And they still got a chance. You can still witness, even when you're at the marriage supper. He says, and they will, um, and they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and they will hate by, be hated by all nations for my sake. So those, of, those people who do get saved during the tribulation are going to be hated even worse than we are hated now. They are going to be hunted down at that time. It's going to be really bad. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And actually the word offended, in Greek it says will cause to fall away. Meaning that they will cause anybody that's maybe thinking about it, many will be turned away from even thinking about it um, for the people who are so angry about what's going on. And it says... Then the false prophet will rise up. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Again, many people are going to try and take control. But there is going to be one along with who um, I called the Antichrist. But in, also in Revelation, is, his title is the Beast. So you're not confused. Antichrist and the Beast in Revelation, they're the same guy. All right. He actually is going to have like an assistant who the Bible calls the false prophet. And so in the first part of that uh, tribulation time where he's trying to establish that that peace accord, he's going to have a a top-ranking religious figure alongside of him that's going to help broker the deal, and he's called the false prophet. Just like like the Holy Spirit points to Jesus, the false prophet will point to the Antichrist and draw everybody and say, we need to to follow. This guy knows what he's doing. He's he's the leader. He's going to get us there. Now, eventually... The beast and the false prophet, they're going to go in and they're going to um, desecrate the temple and set up um, the, a system of worship of the Antichrist, which the false prophet is going to say, no, now we worship this guy. That's going to happen. So false prophets, but the one false prophet who is going to rise up along with the Antichrist. And so, you know, that's not that hard to actually imagine to think that there's going to be some kind of high-ranking religious leader who's able to sway all the people towards the Antichrist who's working on a world peace accord. Um, We saw, you know, for years and years and years, the church was also the government. It's just going to go back to that. A system that worked for so many many years. Well, it worked, you know. It, It existed 
And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. That's an interesting phrase, will grow cold. It means chilled by a poisonous wind. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all of the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. During the tribulation time, the Lord said that he will select out witnesses out of the people. That, and then he says in Revelation, you can read it, it's 12,000 young men um, who have never known a woman, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes and 144,000 witnesses who during the tribulation time will be uh, messianic at this point, believing in Jesus and preaching this gospel of the kingdom to as many people as they can. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then there's a parenthetical phrase here, whoever reads him, let him understand. Well, that's important. We should understand. If, if it says it right in the Bible, whoever reads this, basically it says, if you're going to read this, understand what it means. So let's understand what it means. Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation as it was written in Daniel. So what did Daniel write? Well, let me share it with you. Daniel chapter 9. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, and the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the numbers of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Daniel, you know the story of Daniel. The, they, they get taken over by the Babylonians. He's taken captive. And he is one of the young men of the court who gets kind of elevated up to be trained up in the court of the king to be like, you know, like special. Um, and, uh, you know, he gets offered the king's delicacies and the king's wine. And, and he says to him, he says, uh, he gets together with his fellow captives, uh, these, these young men. And he says, you know, well, we're not going to take the king's delicacies and wine. We're actually just give us vegetables and water. And, and he says, the Lord will, uh, will prosper us in this. And so ultimately the Lord does. And over his life, Daniel is elevated through many kind of almost tragic situations, but that God uses it, you know, like the lion's den um, and all that, uh, that to elevate Daniel into this place of um, authority. Um, in fact, he's made um, chief of all the wise men at some point, which really is an interesting connection to the Christmas story, which maybe we'll talk about at Christmas time. Next month, by the way, if you, didn't, if you lost track, it's November. Um, Daniel, now 86 years old, has been in captivity a long time. In fact, he's been in captivity 69 years. He's reading the writings of Jeremiah the prophet. Why, why, have you ever asked yourself, why was he reading Jeremiah? Have you ever asked yourself, or you just never thought that, and you just be like, he just read it, and it was like, okay, he was reading Jeremiah. That makes sense, and go on. See, it's like, when I read that, I was like, that's odd. Why would he be reading Jeremiah? Well, did you know that Jeremiah and Daniel, like, their lives overlap, not just in time, but in location? Jeremiah was kind of at the height of his prophetic ministry right around when Daniel was a very young boy. In fact, if Daniel was a part of the royal court, which many people believe that he was, 
because of how he was elevated, you know, how he was taken, not just left with all the other captive boys, but elevated into the status of like, oh, we're going to train you up in our ways, then it's very possible, and many people believe that Jeremiah might have actually been one of Daniel's teachers. Now, that makes sense to me because now all of a sudden Daniel, who's in captivity, and maybe he's feeling a little down because he's been in captivity since he was about 17 years old, pulls out the writings of a beloved teacher who was always, uh, you know, I don't know that Jeremiah really lifted anyone's spirits as the weeping prophet, but he is reading something that is familiar, and all of a sudden he reads through Jeremiah talking about or writing about the required 70 years that the Jews would need to be in captivity according to the Lord. In fact, that is in Jeremiah chapter 25, if you ever want to go there on yourself. But basically, he says, in the year that they were taken captive, Jeremiah wasn't taken captive. He was left behind. But he writes to them once they're taken captivity and saying, you were warned by God to stop worshiping idols. You were warned by God to let the land rest. You didn't do any of these things. You didn't repent of any of your sins. That is why you are in this predicament. And he says that um, the whole land, 25 verse 11, and this whole land shall be desolate and in astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Daniel is reading chapter 25, most likely, and he is seeing Jeremiah write, this is why you were taken into captivity. You didn't repent. And what does Daniel say? He spends the entire chapter 9, almost, repenting for his own and the sins of the nation to God once he realizes we're in captivity because of our sins. The Lord used Nebuchadnezzar as his servant, it says, to take us out of the land so it could rest, but also because we did not repent. And Daniel starts repenting for his own sake and for the sake of the people. And then it says that um, Gabriel comes to Daniel. And now Gabriel comes to Daniel to give Daniel special understanding of something even greater than the 70 years was to represent the time that they didn't let the land rest and that at the end of the 70 years that they would be allowed to go back in and make it new. Gabriel comes to Daniel and says, okay, I'm going to give you a vision that's greater than that. That isn't just the making new of the land for the people, but making all things new. And he gives them this understanding of um, this entire tribulation time. So he says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of the sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity. This is Gabriel talking to Daniel to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision of prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth, the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is what? 69 weeks. Now we talked about this a few weeks ago because Gabriel gives Daniel a vision that says it's going to be 69 weeks or 69 seven sevens. 77s, 77s, 483 years. He says it's going to be 483 years. And then the prince, this is, remember, Gabriel telling Daniel, then the prince will um, ride in again. Um, So we talked about this. Jesus has just rode in on a donkey on Palm Sunday on that exact day, 173,880 days or 483 years to the day 
the prophecy, that part of it is fulfilled. Right there, it's fulfilled. And then it says, and after 62 weeks, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. So Daniel's, uh, Gabriel says to Daniel, the prince is going to come in on this particular day, but then he is going to be cut off, but not for himself, meaning not, not because of himself, but because of, well, frankly, us. Jesus was cut off for us, for our sakes, for our sin. That's where we are still. There is still one period of seven years left. One year, uh, one period of seven years left. We are in that period of what's called the church age. From when Jesus was offered up until what we're going to see is the last part. Because then it says in Daniel chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 26, and the people of the prince who is to come, that's not the people, that the prince who is to come is not Jesus, that is actually the Antichrist, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. That's why people think that the Antichrist will come from the um, resurrected Roman uh, people, is that the, the Antichrist will come from the people who will uh, destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That means what I just talked about. The Antichrist will come in and he will set up a peace agreement. But in the middle of the week, at three and a half years into the tribulation, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolation until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. And basically what he says is the Antichrist will come in, he'll make a peace agreement, they'll rebuild the temple, they'll reestablish sacrifice, but at three and a half years, he will come in and he will, the Antichrist will put an end to the sacrifice going on in the temple. He will go in and he will establish himself as the one who is to be worshipped, and that is the three and a half year mark of the tribulation. That's where Daniel that's where Daniel ends the prophecy that he was given by Gabriel. Okay, guys still with me? Okay. <clears throat> Jesus says then to them after he says, as it is according to, the, to Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let him who is in the housetop not go down and take anything out of his house and let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been seen since the beginning of the world until this time, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, and the days will, will be shortened. And so he's talking about, in the, that section right there, he's talking about how bad it will be during that tribulation time. He's like, woe to you if you're pregnant, because being pregnant is hard enough, but being pregnant during what's going to be going on will be horrible. And he says it will be worse than it ever has been or ever will be during that time. And he says it will be so bad that if I didn't put a seven-year period on it, nobody would survive it. See, I, I, uh, for Christ, uh, then he says, for false Christ and false prophets... Oh, therefore, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, there, do not believe it. 
For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out, or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, that doesn't mean quick, okay? It doesn't mean quick because the, the rapture has already happened. What he says is, it will be, look at the context. He's saying, they're going to say, oh, he's over here. And they're going to say, no, he's over here. And you won't know. What he says is, when I come back, the second coming, you will not, it will be obvious. Everyone will see it. As lightning flashes across the sky is obvious to all who see it. He says, it will be obvious to everyone. In fact, it talks about how the clouds are going to open up and the trumpets and he'll come riding in on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him. And nobody will look up that and, and miss it. He says, that's what it will be like. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Do you know what that means? Do you ever drive down the road and you see vultures, um, turkey vultures swing around? What does that indicate? Well, there's something dead on the ground right below, right? It's an obvious sign. He's like, as obvious as that is, will be, that's how obvious it will be when I come back. My second coming, that's not the... That's not the Rapture. The second coming is his final coming when he comes to reset everything. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, a, a reference to Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Not the rapture, but his second coming where they will say like, un undeniably, this is... This is uh, not going to be good for us because we rejected him. He says, and he will send his angels with a great sound and a trumpet and they will gather together his elect for the four winds from each one of heaven, each end of heaven to the other. Now, um, there will come a time at the end where those who actually accept Jesus or are saved during the tribulation, because some will, and they will actually live through it, uh, unbelievably, but they will live through it. He will come at the end and he will gather up all those who are now believers who um, have survived through this really horrible time. And when, if you read through uh, Revelation, you'll see just like, how could anybody possibly, like, enormous meteors hitting the ground and destroying like a third of the fish, a third of the ships on the sea. That's like, uh, someone did a calculation, it's like 52 million ships on the sea right now. So a third of those wiped out with one meteor hitting the ground. Earthquakes everywhere, uh, the, the fresh water being destroyed. Um, houses, hailstones th this big falling out of the sky, not just smashing up your car, but wrecking your house. Nowhere to hide. That's all going to be going on. And yet some people will survive it. And of those, some people will call out to the Lord for forgiveness. And he says, I will collect all of them up. He says, now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branches has already become tender and puts forth leaves. Know that the summer is near. And so you also, when you all see these things, know that it is near at the doors. And surely I say to you that this generation will by no means pass away till all of these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means by no means pass away. When he says this generation, he means the generation that is witnessing what he has just talked about. When they see it, know that they won't pass away until it has all been 
completed. Now, I'm going to stop there because the next part of it goes on, and it actually does talk. Then he's going to go in and say, oh, let me actually talk about the rapture for a bit. I'm going to save that part for next week because, believe it or not, we're already out of time. <laughs> wow. Uh, but today is communion, in case you didn't know. We do communion here on the first Sunday of every month. <clears throat> and um, communion is a time that we remember um, the Lord's death on our behalf through the taking of the cup and the bread. The events that we just looked at today were future events for the disciples, the, um, the temple being destroyed, um, but future events for us as well in terms of all these things that are yet to take place, but they will. Now, when Jesus sat down with his disciples at this time um, for this uh, Passover meal, what we call the Last Supper, was Passover meal, he began to take the elements of the meal. Now, all the elements in the Passover meal have symbols, or they're symbols of things that took place in their past. Jesus is going to take these elements and he's going to reassign symbolic meaning to things that are yet to take place or future events. When he says, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sins, hasn't happened yet when he says it to them. When he says to them, this bread is my body, which is broken for you, to them, it hasn't happened yet, but it will. Jesus predicted that these things would happen, his death and the destruction of the temple, and they did happen just exactly as he said they would. He also, made, he also said that the church, from that point forward, should remember his death by taking the bread and the cup together, what we call communion. So we're going to do that um, as a, a family Today And I want you to take this cup and, and uh, with the bread and the juice that we're going to pass out to you. And I want you to just take a minute and I want you to reflect on this because even though we, we do this once a month, I never want this to become just a thing that we do. I want it to be a time where you reflect and you say, Lord, I am doing this in remembrance of the sacrifice that you made for me so that I don't have to go through the stuff that we just talked about, the tribulation time. I don't have to go through that because you died for me and I accepted that forgiveness. That's what we remember when we take communion together. So um, uh, Jeff is going to play and the guys are going to pass this out. I want you to just take this cup and I want you to hold on to it. I want you to reflect. I don't want you to pray and, and, and thank God for what he did. Remember what he did. Ask him to reveal to you anything that needs to be confessed to him right now and do that before we take communion this morning. So let's go ahead.
When he took the cup, he said, this cup is my blood, which is poured out for the remission of sins of many. As often as you drink this cup, remember the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's do that together today. Now, he didn't end there. He actually gave them and us another prophecy, another prophetic promise. He said, you'll do this until I return. Jesus said, you see, that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to bring you unto myself that where I am, there you can be also. It's a promise. And as we could see in his word, he keeps his promises. His record is perfect. So as you leave here today, remember that we do celebrate communion. Um, We do remember his death on the cross, but we don't do it forever. We do it until he fulfills this last promise and he comes back for us and he takes us home to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you so much for your word and... Lord, because it is through your word that we know you, that we know of your promises, that your love for us, and that your, for your sacrifice for us. Lord, through your word, you teach us of your death, your life, your death, and your resurrection. And Lord, I could not be happier because, as Paul says, without the knowledge of or the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith would be in vain. Lord, I know there have been many who have, been, who have come and made sacrifices, even laying down their own lives, but not one of them has raised from the dead, defeating death, except for you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I am touched as I read through this, the events of the end. Lord, just how compassionate. Lord, I know it's easy for some to look at this and just see wrath, but I see compassion. Lord, I see you making a way for so many more to come to you, Lord. Thank you. Lord, I pray that you would place it on my heart, that you would change me, Lord. That I would see this as an opportunity, as a, as a, a, a warning to go out and to share with others. The end is near. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. You know, I heard somebody say that prophecy is not for the curious. It's for those who want to be challenged to go out now and live your life different. Because if you believe this is true, if you believe this is going to happen, then what is stopping you from going and sharing the truth of Jesus Christ with someone so they can avoid this? What's stopping you? Time? We could be gone this afternoon. We could be out of here. As we walk out the door, we could be taken up like that. Do you have people in your life that you love that you don't want them to have to go through tribulation? It's coming fast. Let prophecy challenge you to go and share the gospel with somebody. Amen.